Welcome to a brand new edition of the Nuggets Inc. podcast. I'm your special guest host, Mike Singer, uh, Nuggets beat writer for the Denver Post. I'm joined by my current friend, former colleague, uh, theoretical rival, Sam Amick of The Athletic, national senior writer. Uh, Sam, how are you doing? Mike Drop Singer, great to see you. I'm, I'm glad it's not, you know, the other way around, former friend, current right. colleague. Right. Theoretical rival is my favorite. Um, I know you're a guest host on the pod, so I'll, I'm going to give you a pass on this one. But when you get a full time pod of your own, I do fully expect for Mike Drop to be the name that uh, that, that our two sons gave you uh, when you became kind of Uncle Mike back in our USA Today days. Right. And for for the listeners, I feel very much at liberty to crack on Sam at any and all opportunities. Given our longstanding history, uh, we worked together at USA Today for three years. That was about six years ago. Um, Sam has been a huge resource to me. I uh, was on his podcast last week on The Athletic, uh, and so I guilt-tripped him into coming on to my podcast this week. Um, Sam, unfortunate timing given yesterday's devastating news in Denver. Jamal, Moore, Jamal Murray, torn left ACL completely wrecks the momentum that the Nuggets have been building for the last three weeks plus since the Aaron Gordon trade. Um, I guess from your perspective, what, what was your initial reaction when you saw Jamal's left leg buckle against Golden State late in the fourth quarter? And then when we got the confirmation uh, early Tuesday morning. You know, it's crazy, Mike. Um, and it's funny because I just wrote about 800 words with my perspective on how the injury hit me. But one thing I didn't share and that answers your question is that in, if you're asking me about the moment he got hurt, so I'm sitting home like I always am these days and I'm watching the game live. And, you know, as you know, I've covered the Warriors really closely during the entire championship run. So I, if you, if you get, did a calculus of which teams I still watch more than others, the Warriors are still on the short list, even with, them having taken a backslide. So Steph Curry is having an incredibly memorable night. He passes Will Chamberlain on the Warriors all-time scoring list. He does it in incredible fashion, you know, 52, 53 points, whatever it is. When Jamal got hurt, I had this like subconscious thing. I saw him go down. We have all covered this game long enough to know almost instantly like, oh God, that's, that's a bad one. And I just didn't, my mind didn't shift there because I'm not the Nuggets beat writer. I don't have to jump on it right away. I, w- I, I almost made a choice to stick in, the, in a happy, joyful Steph Curry space. <laughs> and I, in fact, I tweeted something probably two minutes after Jamal went down. I tweeted something about Steph and about how he, uh, he had joined Michael Jordan and uh, Harden and Kobe is the only guys that have multiple 50 plus point games in multiple seasons, whatever. The point of the story is like, I didn't want to believe it. I didn't want to let my mind go to Jamal. And I remember when I tweeted about Steph having part of my decision-making process be like, all right, Jamal's on the ground and I don't know how bad it is. Is this bad form to tweet positive right. about Steph, especially because, and now I'm getting way too far in the weeds because I'm a, I'm a Hulu guy, so I got like a Wi-Fi delay. 
Okay. You know, like, so it's kind of like, all right, in real time, it's probably been five minutes since Jamal hit the ground. So, I mean, I'm, I'm watching Steph do his thing and I'm wanting to stay in that happy, joyful space. And I didn't want to believe what had happened to Jamal was as bad as it looked. But once you see the replay, once you hear the way he reacted to it, you know, it was pretty unmistakable. And it just sucks, Mike. Like you and I talked about offline yesterday, you know, the bubble for me covering uh, the nuggets in there was the first time I really got to connect with Jamal and learn about him as a player and a person. And and we'll get into all this, but like, you know, I just, I do hold the guy in high regard as a player and, and was impressed with the way that he handled his voice and his perspective in the bubble when it comes to what's happening in the country and all the different things in, you know, in the black community. And so it's just, I wanted to see Jamal Murray in the playoffs again. That's it. And, you know, it's a bummer that, that he won't be there. I think that a lot of people felt that way, especially because um, the Nuggets went all in at the trade deadline. They uh, gave up real assets, RJ Hampton, Gary Harris, a future first round pick. And basically their window was supposed to be two years. It was supposed to be this postseason run with Aaron Gordon, and it was going to be next postseason run before Aaron Gordon's contract comes up, before they have to decide on Michael Porter Jr. And these were going to be the Nuggets' two best cracks at it before it gets messy. Right. Um, I, I read I read your story in The Athletic, published this morning, kind of a, a personal reflection on, on what Jamal meant to you Um stemming from that that bubble interview with Jared Greenberg and, and when he put his heart on his sleeve. Um, you know, and I think we always have this interesting um, dilemma as, as media where you want to create real relationships with players, but you need to try to um, maintain some level of objectivity. And by no means did what you write um, go over that line, but it's very obvious that Jamal resonated with you. Um, again, emanating from what he did in the bubble against Utah when he put his heart on his sleeve. Why was it, um, why did he have such a profound effect on you as a player, as a person, not necessarily a player? I would probably say, because, and it relates to what we do for a living, right? Like, you know, I've, I've done this, I'm dating myself, but I've done it for about, you know, 21 years now in terms of out of college. I've covered the NBA since 2004. And the longer I do it, the more I appreciate the interactions you have that are authentic and that are, you know, you, you, yesterday when you and I talked and, you know, full disclosure to the listeners, you know, Mike was my editor at USA Today. And so we would talk about stories and, and we do, we still do that to this day. You picked the word vulnerable because I had written about how when somebody like Jamal bears his soul, like he did in that interview with Jared Greenberg, it's not something that is easily forgotten, but the word vulnerable captures it. And it wasn't just in that interview. Jamal and I had, and I don't want to overstate it, it was probably a 10-minute conversation probably two weeks after that where we talked about his experience in the bubble. And he was, you know, the same type of guy. He was honest. He was authentic. That stuff resonates with me because our jobs are like somewhat worthless if people aren't going to be real with us. If it's going to be nothing but cliches and politics, then I don't really want to do this job for a living. It's not very much fun. So getting somebody like Jamal who is willing to be real, that is why, you know, I felt a, a different kind of connection to this guy. And again, to not overstate it, you know this, Mike, I'm not trying to pretend that I know Jamal. I don't, um, you know, it's just a matter of like being impressed with the way he carried himself. And, and in that conversation I mentioned that he and I had, it was things like, 
him being willing to say that he struggled a little bit with mental health in the bubble, him being willing to talk about, you know, the different things he had to do to get his mind right in that environment. So that stuff as writers, we love, right? Like my least favorite thing is, you know, the athlete who just basically can't wait to be done with the interview, who wants to just do nothing but say, you know, the most boring thing that comes across his mind that is not real at all. And so, I mean, in that regard, you know, I'm, I'm a Jamal fan. Um, as I was kind of reflecting on the injury and letting the dust settle for the past day, um, initially, you know, I was a little bit gobsmacked at how significant it was and, and the immediate implications, the immediate, immediate ramifications on the Nuggets this season and obviously how they're no longer probably title contenders, um, which is kind of the bottom line. Um, that, that's the aggregate effect of, of what happened. But when I was thinking about Jamal all day yesterday and, and, and the toll that I'm sure that this rehab is going to take on him, I was I was reflecting on why I like Jamal, why I like covering Jamal. And I came to the conclusion that Jamal Murray is both my least favorite interview on the Nuggets and my favorite interview on the Nuggets. <laughs> and the reason why that is, is because if you come to Jamal with the question that is you, you misphrase it or you just beat around the bush or it's surface level, like Jamal is going to make you work. And he's going to test you. He's going to push back on you and he's going to make it hard for you, which I mean, I've had some hilarious slash borderline uncomfortable interactions with Jamal over Zoom. But at the same time, the reason why I appreciate him so much is because he can also be the most engaging, the most honest, the most insightful, the most raw um, interview on the Nuggets at the beginning of this season. Uh amidst all the racial strife that was going on, I actually think it was right leading into the bubble. We had a Zoom session with local media reporters and Jamal Murray flipped the script on all the local media. And he said, have you guys had any uh, racial encounters that stand out? Like, I want to hear them, share them with me. And like that, I've never seen anything like that before. I've never seen a guy flip the script and pose a question to the media because he genuinely was curious about our perspective. So I think from a human element, there is a connection that a lot of people feel with Jamal because of, to use your word, which was ostensibly my word, he made himself <laughs> so vulnerable. Uh, and I think everybody respects that component of him. That was good, by the way, Mike. You just found a way to pat yourself on the back while making it seem like you were complimenting me. That was I'm versatile. Is that a reverse, <laughs> a reverse left-handed compliment? I don't know which hand that is. <laughs> I'm with you on all that. I mean, didn't he have another interaction basketball related? And I was not on this Zoom, but wasn't there a night where he threw the the microphone back to you guys regarding, you know, why the team was struggling, where it was like, what what are you seeing? What do you think? That oh, type yeah. of thing. Yeah, he went at he he, he likes going at me like That's, Jamal and I. Well, I was going to say, like, I, I, I rambled for five minutes about why I, I think I like Jamal Murray. And the truth is because he busts your balls. I think that's why I like Jamal Murray. <laughs> and, and I appreciate that aspect of Jamal too. We have a good relationship. Um, he's honest. And I like that he challenges people. I like that he tests people. But at the end of the day, he will give you um, good answers if you ask um, thoughtful, insightful questions. So I appreciate that. Um, kind of spinning it forward. Uh, what what do you think are the immediate implications of this of the injury on this team? They, they were obviously surging uh, before the last two games. They were seventeen and three in their last twenty games. What 
would you define if we if we allow that they are no longer like real championship contenders what how would you define success uh for this nuggets team um in the next coming weeks i would think it would be you know i think everybody in around the league would probably agree that getting out of the first round would be success um at this rate you know they are they fifth right now is They're that right fourth fourth okay i mean home court is going to be in question you know you're you're very possibly very likely going to go into the first round as the underdog so i mean it's you know when i talked to people yesterday and, and checking in with a few different teams in the west about what they think it was the, the general consensus was they're going to be done in the first round. And so, you know, bucking that kind of expectation, I think would be success. And I find myself, you know, I did a little unofficial ranking of how I see the West title contenders now, or at least like the better teams in the West. And I find myself, you know, torn between what I really thought pragmatically and then not wanting to be disrespectful to Jokic, where it's like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to assume that he can't carry this team even more than he already has. I don't want to, I mean, who knows? Maybe they shock the world and win a bunch of games. But the problem is, as you know better than anybody, is that Jokic seemingly was already carrying the biggest load he's ever carried. You know, Michael Porter Jr. had come along really, really well and was playing at his peak. Aaron Gordon is the only guy I look at and say, maybe, like maybe you can get more offensively out of him because other than that, you know, Compazzo, Will Barton, um, who am I leaving out from Monte? I mean, Monte, yeah. I mean, Monte is going to be the man, you know, on center stage, kind of, but no one's coming in expecting him to be, you know, Jamal Murray 2.0. So, you know, I just, I don't know. Um, they're going to have to be a Michael Malone team that is gritty and nasty defensively. And that's going to have to be a, an identity shift even more so, I think, with Jamal out because the idea of having this kind of quasi-historic offense is going to be hard when you got a, a guy like Jamal out because even though we all know he can be streaky, we all know he struggled early this season, this dude had been playing at a really high clip for the past couple months. It's just a huge loss. So I don't know. I, I, I had them on my list. You saw it, um, you know. The, who did I have? Portland was the only team in the top six, six, you know, that I had below them. And really that was only because the Blazers have, have uh, lost five out of seven. But, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's going to be really hard. If we're looking at, and I'm not, you know, no disrespect to the Blazers, but I think maybe two days ago, everybody thought that there were five teams that could come out of the West, uh, both LA teams, Utah, Phoenix, and Denver. Um, the math simply does not work that all five of those teams are going to advance to the second round. And if you needed to choose one of those teams that is the most susceptible um, to a first round uh, upset, it would probably be the Denver Nuggets simply because they are going to need to adjust on the fly to losing their second best player. And I really like the point that you made that Jokic and MPJ were already doing um, historic things uh, for their for their respective um, positional and age groups like uh, Jokic, MVP front runner, um, Michael Porter Jr. is coming into his own. Michael Porter Jr. has only played 99 regular season games in his NBA career. He's in his third year in the NBA. Is it fair to assume that he can um, rise to that level and be the number two option of to you know a historic offense? 
And then can the Nuggets readjust who they are? Because Michael Malone has been imploring this team to play defense, play consistently, do not rely on the offense. And now, whether, you know, whether I don't know how much those words landed with the Nuggets, but if they are going to do anything in the postseason, they are going to have to land and they are going to have to remake who they are and compete um, and win those 50-50 balls and be an aggressive turnover um, forcing team on the defensive end. So um, that's kind of what I'm looking for in the next five weeks going into the postseason. They will probably be underdogs, even if they end up as the four seed. And, and again, it all depends on matchups. Um, but I agree with your assessment. If they got to the second round at this point, uh, I think it would be a win just given the circumstances. I think the more damning thing and the more alarming thing from a big picture perspective is, is what I talked about earlier, the, the, the ramifications going into next season. Um, how do you view the, the Murray injury in terms of where it puts the Nuggets going forward? And I know we don't have an exact timeline or an exact time frame for when he comes back, but um, you know, what, what do you, how do you think it impacts their future prospects at least next year when we assume he comes back? It's not great, you know what I mean? And, and and before we, real quickly, before we go down that road, I, you got me thinking about the prognosticating about these playoffs, right? The idea of any of these elite teams losing one of their stars, like the proof is right there in front of us. Let's look at the Lakers. When LeBron James, arguably the greatest player of all time, lost Anthony Davis, the Lakers had a really hard time. Steph Curry has had an incredible year, and his is even worse. You lose Klay Thompson, uh, Kevin Durant obviously leaves, but Steph has been incredible. So, you know, Jokic is that guy for the Nuggets. He can be incredible. He can do everything he can do, and they're still going to take L's at a higher clip than they did before. So, you know, to me, that's that's kind of where my head's at. Next year, it's just, I, I you know, you talk about writing that I feel bad for Jamal. I feel bad for Jamal now, next year, Maybe I'll write another column about how bad I feel for the Nuggets. Because at that point, it's about the collective group and their plan. And Tim Conley, you know, having put a really, you know, extremely effective plan together and the kind of thing where, you know, they collected their assets. They kind of laid in the weeds waiting for the right opportunity. They 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 passed on other players that they could have had. They, they you know, dipped their toe in the James Harden waters, thought about that. And Aaron Gordon was the guy. And it looked like it was really, really going to work. And for a number of different reasons, right? Like the defensive impact that you hit on earlier, the contract situation, the fact that you would get him for this year and next and and really have a good runway at it. And now, you know, that's tricky. And I shouldn't be drawing a blank on this. Is he up after next offseason or the following? Aaron Gordon has uh, this year and then next year and then is a free agent. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. And I am cheating. I actually, I pulled up the salaries here. So, Okay. That's where it's like, okay, the whole Aaron Gordon experiment, like seven to nine months typically is what you're looking at with an ACL injury. And so, you know, we're sitting here talking in April, um, you know, that's, that makes it hard. Aaron Gordon's not going to have the evidence and the experience that he needs to decide what he thinks of this Nuggets group with Jamal Murray as part of it. Um, and so that part, you know, you know, it's not eloquent. I keep going back to the word. It sucks. It just sucks for, for everybody involved, especially because I love the idea that in the West that, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for the kind of the storyline of give me some super teams and then give me like the plucky organic, you know, small market, 
success story as well. And let's just see say what... it. Just say it, fanboy. Just say it. <laughs> and he's talking about laying in the weeds. You were waiting on that one for 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> I just love the idea. I mean, like Lakers Nuggets, like that conference finals last year was more competitive than it looked to be on paper. And, you know, that matchup was a fun one because the Lakers, we all know the Lakers went in. They did they respect the Nuggets? Yes. Did they fear the Nuggets? No. But there was probably a little element of disrespect where they behind the scenes were like, all right, let's get these jokers out of the way, pun intended. Uh, you know, but that kind of a dynamic is now going to be missing from the Western Conference. I, I think LeBron even said it. I think he was on his road tripping podcast and he talked about how stunned he was that the Clippers uh, blew that. Right. Um, so it was more a, a stunned from the Clippers aspect than a healthy respect for what the Nuggets did. Or maybe maybe I'm throwing LeBron under the bus for you're something not, you should never no, do. You're not. And the Nuggets, I listen, I really enjoy dealing with their group. I will good-naturedly rib our guy Nick O'Hare a little bit, who does a great job in Nuggets PR. I thought it was like in the bubble, it was funny chatting with Nick about how like you know, the Nuggets definitely noticed how the media mostly ignored them in the bubble until they got to the conference finals. And it was almost kind of like, oh, you're still here? Like, all right, I guess we have to write about you now. You know, like that yeah. element, you know, they, they kind of use that as fuel. Uh, it's funny you say that because I was thinking about my first day in the bubble when the Nuggets actually had a practice. And I believe the first thing that Malone said to me was he goes, it's nice to see the Denver Post finally showed up for our playoff run. <laughs> um, so, it's, again, it's just those little moments that are that are fun where, where you can, you know, poke fun at people and, and know that it's not a personal thing. It's just like it is what it is. This is this is our jobs and we do our best to create authentic relationships. Um, and, and again, that's why it, it's, it's just so gutting. I mean, people around the Nuggets were gutted yesterday. I'm sure still are today in just processing this. Um, and one more note on on kind of where the Nuggets go in the future. Uh, I feel like the Jamal injury really makes this offseason a lot more interesting because Will Barton has a player option. Um, I believe that he was leaning towards opting out of that just to kind of, as most players do, to secure a, a more guaranteed deal, a longer deal. Um, you wonder how that, how Jamal's injury uh, impacts Will's decision. Does he does he see an opportunity to have more touches next year to to increase his numbers um, on an offense that doesn't have this you know this hub in Jamal Murray? Um, Jamichael Green is a has a player option too. Um, Paul Millsap's going to be a free agent. So um, you know the, the Nuggets love their their consistency, but the fact is coming into this year they had seven new guys and looking towards next year. They're going to have a lot more turnover, um, given those free the potential free agents that I mentioned, and and obviously what they do with the backcourt, um, be it give Monte Morris that starting position, whether they bring in a guy. I reported that the Nuggets were interested in Austin Rivers, maybe a guy like Troy Daniels, who they had last year in the bubble. Um, so just a lot of competing factors, and that's what's so difficult difficult about this is the amount of tentacles that um, kind of. Like that, that are present as a result of Jamal's injury and, and all the cascading ramifications of it. The Barton um, so one, the Barton one's interesting. Um, how old again? I keep testing knowledge or asking you for information. I, I think know he's twenty nine. Offhand, I think he's twenty nine. So I mean, I get the idea that at twenty nine, you know, it's around that age where 
you're you're probably on the back end of your prime, and so you want to secure a, a, a new long-term deal. I would, you know, I'm not an agent, I'm not a consultant, but I, you know, my objective look at it would be if I'm Will, I'm thinking pretty hard about Stan because to me, Will Barton is the kind of guy that, you know, his his skill set is very well established. We know what he can do, but I think his value to the Nuggets is greater than what his value would be on the market. 14.3 million is not a small chunk of change. Um, and, you know, I don't know what the market, I mean, it's, it's a pretty decent free agency class. And, you know, I think that it would behoove him to be that guy to try to carry them offensively or at least fill that gap as much as possible. And then who knows what you get next summer. So the ripple effects are a lot, but the undercurrent for the purposes of like the title contending conversation, that's where it's a gut punch, right? Cause you can sit here and get in the weeds on all the specifics, but it all comes back to that one thing. Like if they're against the Lakers or the Clippers, now I'm going to stop with those two teams because Utah and Phoenix to me are, are different conversations, but Lakers and Clippers against these Jamal Murray list nuggets. Like I'm just, I'm, I'm watching because it's my job and I'm expecting a five game route. You know what right. I mean? It's because right. this league is a star driven you know, dynamic duo, you know, trio, quartet type league. And and you just got to have those guys to make it to the end. It's a reminder of how fickle um, the, these championship windows are. Um, I think that was maybe like a, a poignant takeaway from yesterday was um, one day that they're thinking they are legitimate championship contenders. And make no mistake, they believe that internally. They thought that they had the horses to – compete to win a championship to go toe-to-toe with those uh top tier teams in the west utah phoenix the la's of the world they thought they had it um i I wanted to just cite real quick uh you know jamal like when i I was looking around the league at past acl tears and 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 kind of the comeback trails there the two that came to mind i used to live in chicago i used to cover the chicago bulls um derrick rose when he tore his actually his left ACL in the first round of the playoffs in 2012, um, we all know that there were long-term effects um, as a result of that first one uh, that D Rose had. That is probably worst case scenario, just devastating to the Bulls, devastating to D Rose's career. And I don't think anybody wants to go down that road. Um, On the flip side, another name that came to mind uh, was Zach Levine who actually the Bulls traded for on draft night when they moved Jimmy Butler to Minnesota. I remember you and I collaborated on that story um, that night of the draft. And so Zach Levine is a success story. Zach Levine is a guy who had his ACL and then he's built himself into an all-star this year. He is probably the franchise cornerstone of the Chicago Bulls at this point. Um, a little bit of different in terms of the in terms of the styles um, of Jamal Murray and Zach Levine. Given that Zach Levine is a freak athlete, that's not necessarily Jamal's game. Um, but there is a there is a precedent. There is a history of guys returning, and I tend to believe that Jamal's style is not one that will be uh, markedly affected by this ACL tear um, if he indeed is able to recover fully. I don't think that his style of play. Um, is going to just fall up by the wayside uh, because of it. I would tend to agree, and I think the Levine example is a really good one. Um, it's like you said, it's a little bit apples to oranges from an athleticism standpoint. 
but you know, there's a lot of similarities there and Zach is playing the best basketball of his life right now. And, you know, I'm looking at his numbers post ACL and, and, and honestly, he, if you looked at his progression year over year, you would never know that there was a major injury. It's just, it's been nothing but an upward climb. So that part, I do feel confident too, that Jamal is going to be, you know, back to being the guy that, that he's capable of being in this league. Um, and I know we keep pounding the point and pouring salt in the Nuggets fans' wounds. The problem, of course, is that it, it just no longer fits as nicely within the context of what the Nuggets were trying to accomplish. Yeah, no doubt. It You know, it just gets messy um, given the contracts and, and, you know, does Aaron decide to stay and what do they do with Porter in terms of an early extension? Do they, do they reach a max number with him? Are they willing to go into the luxury tax? Like, they're, again, the ripple effects. Do you, sorry, well, here's, I mean, yeah, the ripple, no, it, along those lines, like now I'm officially, you know, apparently trying to get Nuggets fans to to kind of veer off the road as they listen to the pod. Like the you, the Jokic one is the one that is, is you know, it's, it's down the road. I get that. He signed through 2023. But whenever you got a player of that magnitude and you're now talking about, like you said earlier, a front runner MVP candidate, you know, it just, it's just, it's a terrible thing to essentially have lost one of his three chances at a title based on his current contracts, right? Like this was one. And then next year is conceivably two, except that like we've talked about, it comes with Jamal being, you know, who the heck knows what version of himself on the back end of the season. And then guess what? Now Jokic is one year away from free agency and that's when teams get nervous and especially small market teams. So what is his state of mind and how are things going at that point? Those are going to be questions that, that are hanging over the nuggets for the next couple of years. You mentioned it. Um, I'm going to spin the, spin the topic away from Jamal. Um, Nikola Jokic as the MVP front runner. How, if at all, does Jamal Murray's injury affect uh, Nikola Jokic's candidacy? And where did you have Nikola Jokic um, kind of in the discourse of the MVP conversation in your official athletic Sam Amick hierarchy? Uh, I had him number one. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I've done two of these where I ranked the candidates. And, you know, he in the latest one, he was number one. And I'm trying to cheat. I should know my own material. I think I had uh, Giannis number two. And, and I had written and said countless times that it was the kind of the availability award. And it's not really sexy, but the old line about how the best ability is availability. And, and Jokic was out there playing every night, had his team in the top half of the Western Conference. And, you know, a historic track where, as you know, you know, he's right there on that threshold of 28, 11, and 8, which is uh, I think only four other guys or three other guys ever have hit those thresholds. So doing great things. But the way it impacts it, obviously, is that every loss they take, and, and let's assume that they wind up on the back end of the top eight in the West, the, the unofficial calculus uh, gets harder for a guy like him. Like, how do I feel about voting for, for a guy who had a great year, but his team is now sixth? And it's like, oh boy, now his team is seventh. And who knows? We'll see how it goes. But th this is such a weird MVP race, Mike. Like, and now I cheated and I have it in front of me. You know, I had Damian Lillard third. That's not looking good right now, even that high of a ranking because Portland's not playing well. I don't know who the hell this goes to. You know, Joel Embiid is back. And if Philly 
can wind up winning the East. And if he ends up playing enough games where you can sleep at night voting for Joel, then honestly, you know, I could see a world where Joel uh, overtakes Jokic in this thing. But the collective success matters. Uh, and people generally don't like voting for an MVP that is that, whose team is not considered elite. And that's where it, it may not be fair because it's not his fault that Jamal got hurt, but I can see the look on your face. You have, you have some feelings here. <laughs> I don't have feelings. I have a feeling that Nuggets fans are about to be in their feelings. But with you saying Joel Embiid has a chance at the MVP over Nikola Jokic, given that you also said the availability award when there's like an 18 or 19 game difference between the two. And I get it. Team success is what matters, but um, it may be the closest MVP vote we've had in a long time. So here's the, I think I have this right. And listen, there's no, for people who don't know, there's no official parameters to this stuff. Like there's no league rule that says you can't vote for a guy who only played, you know, whatever percentage of the games. And so that's why players do get kind of frustrated with the media because we have to kind of, we're left to our own devices. We got to come up with our own opinion. So Embiid um, could still wind up playing in a grand total of 55 of the six or 72 games. Um, Now that's nothing compared to Jokic, who at this rate is going to go 72 for 72, I believe. But, you know, it's, it's right there in that not great, no, you know, but I don't know. I think he he could get some votes. But from there, it's you know, LeBron was next on the list. Luca is great year, but faded. Um, you know, you from there, the the Jazz and the Phoenix don't get any love because their guys candidates aren't really conventional. But it's a weird one, man. It's one of the strangest MVP races that I can remember. I, I want to tug on one more string uh, with Jokic and MVP. Um, we talked about it a little bit on the athletic pod. Um, do you, how comfortable do you feel like league wide voters? There are 100 voters. How comfortable do you feel like voters would be with voting Nikola Jokic the MVP, given that he does not look or act or feel like a traditional MVP candidate? Like, in my opinion, voters are going to have to wrap their heads around this dude is wholly unlike anything we've ever seen. Um, so I'm curious, how, do you think voters would be cool with it? I do. Yeah, I do. Uh, I mean, maybe here and there you'd have people who subconsciously are more comfortable. I mean, for one, it's counterintuitive in today's game to vote for a big because it's the three point era. It's, you know, the wings are running the NBA. And so in that regard, it, you know, maybe people have to wrap their head around that too. But I do think that the Nuggets have been good enough for long enough that while they don't get the spotlight they probably deserve, the narrative around Jokic has officially reached a point where, you know, and this is a combination of national television, you know, appearances, playoff appearances, bubble performances, like people do tune in to watch Jokic and they, and they now have, I think, an appreciation of him as a guy that is just a, a specimen of a very different kind and a guy who we no longer want to call him the best passing big man in the game. We just want to call him maybe the best passer in the game. You know what I mean? He's up there with LeBron and guys like that and maybe better. Um, And so I think there's an appreciation. I mean, I watched him the other night, Mike, and you get to watch him every night. And it's just like, man, he, he just, the way he just sits there 
and treats the basketball court, you know, like he's the, the marionette and, and, right. and sees everybody on the court and, and he has fun with it. Right. Like he had a, a, an oop. I forget to who it was, but his order, his, I think it was supporter that lob. The, but the look away, right. It was right. the look away. And it's like, he, he probably could have completed the lob without the look away, but he has flair to his game and there's a joy to his game. And it's, it's, it's ironic. We talked about Steph Curry earlier. One of my favorite parts about Steph is that as much as he's the humble, nice superstar dude also has swag and likes to have fun out there. When Campazzo got up in him, he was absolutely punking Campazzo because right. he doesn't like it. I, like I, I had sh- uh, flashbacks to Matthew Delvadova. Yeah, that's a great like, one. Yeah, like he's not feeling that. So he's going to just own you and he's going to drive the ratings for the people watching because people like, you know, players having that kind of swag. Jokic has a little bit of that. Like he knows he's out there and he knows he's pretty damn good. And even though he plays that whole aw shucks, I'm not thinking about the MVP. You know, I mean, it's it's reached a point now where I, I think and hope that people appreciate what he brings. Just to clarify, uh, does Nikola Jokic have swag? <laughs> I think so. Although I got to stop going to this line. It's 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 mildly uncomfortable. I, when you talk about swag, I just I always go back to that locker room where where I was waiting to talk to him with a group of reporters, and he was rocking the SpongeBob SquarePants underwear. Like, I, can you have? swag when when that's the, <laughs> the yep, yep those are the those are the existential questions uh <laughs> we get at on the uh, nuggets inc pod um especially when we have sam on the pod so uh in wrapping up i, I wanted to um you know i feel like we, we adequately covered the, the implications of jamal the context where they go from here um it's just a, it's just a devastating injury uh, I think for all, everybody involved and really kind of undercuts what they were building toward. I think that's why everyone's still reckoning with, um, you know, the, the ultimate toll that this takes. Uh, I was going to blindside you with a, uh, with, with a memory lane. Was there ever any, like going back to our USA Today days, do you have any stories uh, that we worked on or, or any moments that we had um you know, in our in our two to three years together, that stuck out to you that were favorites, um, where we, you know, that sort of set the background for our friendship. Does anything come to mind? Uh, I mean, honestly, yeah. I mean, the top of mind, the first one that I think of, that is, I'm being corny here, but it's like when you do this job for a living, you you got to try to not forget that <clears throat> that to varying degrees, we all got into it because we enjoy sports, right? Mm. So. When you when your role was kind of changing at USA Today and you were getting your feet wet with the new role, you know, you are an unabashed, you know, native of Ohio and a guy that, you know, that, that you know, that's your story and that's your background. Cleveland. Come on now. Yeah. And so you're a Cleveland boy. And so we were preparing to cover the finals, I think it was. And it was like, you know, you and, and you can fill in the gaps on the story here and help me with my memory. But like. Jeff Zilgin and I, the two national writers at the time at USA Today, you know, we're kind of just going through the motions because we've we've been there and done that and trying to figure out how to cover the finals. And you were like driving, you know, unspoken amount of miles to get to Cleveland and to to get into the the finals. And you wanted to to just kind of be able to feel it and hear it. And, And I forget exactly what happened there, but I just remember like your enthusiasm and your energy and your passion 
to to not just be somebody who sat in the office and waited for the story to drop and then published it and had that be it. It was like, no, you know, you, you can tell at the time that like you probably weren't long for an editor role because you like being in the field. Uh, and that that part sticks with me because it, it, it that's kind of who you are as a sports fan. Um, I believe it was the 2018 finals. We I don't think I was supposed to go. <laughs> and I said, uh, screw this. Like, cause I had gone to the previous right. three right. and I said, screw this. And I drove from Chicago to Cleveland. And it's a great example because we stayed up till four or five in the morning that night, like in a hotel room, uh, eating pizza and cranking out stories, uh, that were ready, you know, on the website for the first thing in the morning. And you're right. That's the reason you do it. You don't want to sit, you know, uh, in your mom's basement, uh, publishing stories. That's not fun. Like you, you want to rub elbows with people. You, you want to create relationships and have fun. And, um, you know, kind of, and, and again, I do think there was a value in being at those finals. I think we had, we had four in a row. I think we traveled for all of them. Uh, I was lucky enough to travel for those where you get to storyboard and talk about, um, ways to approach it in the moment. Cause it's hectic. Like you've covered finals before. It is crazy, uh, trying to figure out and assign who to do what. Um, my favorite story, and I'll, and I'll leave you with this. Do you remember um, the great Gordon Hayward free agent fiasco of 2000? I'm going to say 17. I don't know. I don't forget what year it was. Do you remember that? Fiasco meaning the part where he wouldn't confirm his, his choice? Yes. Do yeah. you, rem you remember the specifics? I do. I think so. Okay. Here, what, from what yeah. I remember, you and Chris Haynes had the story right. uh, early in the day. We published it, and um, then we had a hard to time. Credit, Chris broke it. I don't want to take credit. Okay. For Chris okay. broke it, and I quickly confirmed it. Okay. But yes, go ahead. But then we published the story, and we hear radio silence from Hayward's camp. Right. Like, we hear radio silence right. for hours, and it's super uncomfortable because – I remember I'm getting heat from my bosses being like, why, you know, we need this harder. We need it. We need a second source. We need something. And you're like, I have this, like, we're correct on this. And just for context, I was out on a lake, sitting on a boat, talking to you, trying to deal <laughs> with this and navigate this. I put my phone in, in a plastic bag. My charge is going down to like 12%. I row in a canoe from the boat <laughs> in a canoe back to shore so that I can get to a plug to deal with your Hayward news, which was just, you know, it was a, it was, a, it was a great confirmation. We got it. We were never wrong, but Gordon Hayward was taking about six hours to write his players tribune story yeah, of why I'm leaving Utah and God, it was never more stressful um, than rowing across that lake. I feel like those are two good stories. We got to make sure we put as much meat on the bone as possible. So real quickly on your whole Cavs Cleveland story, mm -hmm. you know, I'm a sucker for like, I do have a little bit of, of, of kind of the rogue guy in me. You know what I mean? Like, so the idea that the company basically wouldn't green light you from an expenses standpoint and you buck the system and said, hell no, here we go. That that's my, I like it. So that part has got to be said. And on the Gordon one, Listen, I had a great interview with Gordon this year. He's a likable guy. That irritated the hell out of me because the whole subculture of I'm listen, players taking control of their voice is wonderful. And they're doing that and and you know more now than ever. This was more my understanding was like there was a contractual agreement between him and Players Tribune. And it was like, you know, essentially 
let's either hold the media at bay or just not be forthright with them at all. And so that we can kind of execute on the agreement we have with this platform. That's not journalism. That's not respecting journalism. It, to this day, that does irritate me. To Chris's credit, you know, he had it right. I remember Chris calling me that day. <clears throat> and it was funny because one of my distinctions in the business, I mean, I've broken my share of news, but I am not in, in the modern day, somebody who focuses every day on, on being a breaking news guy. But the Dwight Howard story back when he agreed to go to Houston was that was like the Gordon Hayward thing times 10 because I broke it. I knew I had it. And then Dwight jumped on a plane to go from ironically uh, Colorado. He was vacationing to LA and there was like radio silence for two and a half, three hours. They had no Wi-Fi on the plane, no confirmation. And, and I remember it's to this day, it's the only time, that I got uh, an invite for SportsCenter to come on SportsCenter. And I wasn't comfortable like, man, I know I got the story, but I don't wanna go on SportsCenter and have them ask me if I got it right because no one's confirmed it. I'm not smooth enough on TV to just totally nail that. So don't, don't sell yourself short, Sam. <laughs> but like, I remember Haynes, you know, I don't think he would mind me sharing this. Like when the Gordon thing went down, Haynes kind of called me laughing and he knew he had it. I knew that he was right. But it was kind of like, hey, let me call the dude who is one of the few people on the planet who can relate to this feeling when the whole world, social media wise and, and in the sports world is kind of yelling at you on your phone saying, hey, man, you, you know, you jack this up or whatever. There's anxiety, there's stress. And then, yes, there's relief when they finally, you know, confirm what you already knew. But yeah, good times, man. No, I love it. Um, Sam, I, I think that does it. Uh, I, I appreciate your perspective on it's on Jamal Murray on, you know, uh, where they go from here. Um, obviously fun going down memory lane. It's not like we don't do this every freaking week uh, when we <laughs> chat on the phone, but you know, maybe, maybe people appreciate listening to kind of the, uh, the, the substance behind some of these stories. Um, Again, appreciate your time. Thank you so much for jumping on. Uh, obviously, follow his work at The Athletic. He's Sam Amick. He's a good dude, and he's relatively good at his job. <laughs> I'm not as good at, at pickleball as you are, Mike Singer. We didn't even get into that, man. I, I cannot neither confirm or deny. <laughs> All right, brother. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you.